to introduce our book about uh, uh, pre-modern uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, mainly, the purpose of the book was to try and draw the history of the island into global history. It's not; it's largely invisible in wider historiographic debates. In fact, even even its relationship with South Asia is often quite uh, marginal. And it's really the result of a series of efforts by the American Institute for Sri Lankan Studies to help reinvigorate scholarship on the island and outside of the island, um, which has really suffered in recent decades. If you think that at one point um, the island was producing scholars, scholars like Stanley Tambaya and Gananath Obeisekara, um, in recent years the state of the university system, uh, the lingering effects of the Sinhala Rani policy, and, and obviously political conflict in the island have all meant that although history is more salient than it ever well, it's been salient for a long time on the island, um, scholarship has kind of lost contact with other historiographic fields. So about um, 10 years ago, uh, IELTS, the American Institute of Strangling Studies, noticed that there were a number of younger scholars coming through, Zoltan, myself, Sujit Siva Sundaram, who's at Cambridge, and Alicia Shrika, who's at Leiden. Um, and trying to bring us together in a series of workshops that took place in Sri Lanka and uh, various parts of the world. And, and this, this book is really the outcome of, of those contacts. Um, and what we found is that there were a number of people working on Sri Lanka in the early period. They tended to be scattered across many departments, literary studies, art, archaeology, uh, religious studies. And that's really reflected in our uh, contributors uh, to the book. You'll have a list of the, of the contents of the book um, in front of you. In terms of the organizing concept, very much with the zeitgeist, we asked our contributors to move away from a nation-state focus and situate their work in terms of much larger regional flows of uh, trade, currency, empire building, poetic forms, slavery, religious conversion, and so on. So, for example, Tilman Frash, uh, which is the third chapter, is looking at the, uh, the Pali world that stretched from Sri Lanka to mainland Southeast Asia. Uh, in the period. However, we also found that an emphasis on connectedness, like any new scholarly trend, can move quite quickly from the revelatory to the trite. So we also asked contributors to think about yeah, how important were these connections really? Uh, what, what does the presence of, say, foreign goods, ideas, or people, uh, what do they really mean when they get uh, appropriated for domestic use? What about disconnection, misunderstanding, appropriation, localization? So, for example, Rebecca Dali, chapter two, has, has, a, has a chapter on what may seem like a very dry subject to numismatics. But what she's doing is saying, well, a lot of the claims for how wonderfully connected Lanka was to the Roman Empire, to the West, to the further East, rest on claims about the coinage evidence that everybody repeats without ever actually going back and looking at the evidence itself. And she finds lots of that evidence um, wanting, although she does point to a spur in connectedness from uh, in the 5th century AD, which I think is interesting for a number of reasons. Um, or, for example, the chapters by Alistair Warnell and Justin Henry and Stephen Bergvis, who, who are in uh, more literary departments, are looking at how Sanskrit literary forms and norms um, are both appropriated in Lanka but also resisted and challenged. So, for example, um, the use of the erotic in Sanskrit poetry is problematized when it's put within a, a Buddhist framework um, and that kind of thing. In a way, um, 
the idea was partly to move Sri Lankan history on from, from older debates that have been um, dominating the historiography of, this, of the pre-modern period, in particular the Vex issue of the ethnicity of the Sinhala people and, and how old it, it was. Although, actually, I'm going to be talking about that in my section um, uh, of this talk uh, later on. So we're employing the concept of cosmopolitanism, but in a critical way. How far does it really help us understand pre-modern history? How do we talk about cultural diversity before the nation state? Um, the work of Sheldon Pollock was one reference point here, but it's not the only one. Um, we also wanted to ask, what's the relationship between cosmopolitanism and imperialism? And that means both European imperialism, but also earlier forms of imperial uh, projection. Uh, can, can the cosmopolitan be a feature of empire? For a South Asianist audience, I suppose some of the questions that arise are, to what extent does, does the eye of the boundaries of Sri Lanka matter? Is, is Sri Lanka better conceptualized in terms of South Asia, Indian Ocean, Southeast Asian, um, and also a point I'm going to return to, which is do, do Pollock's arguments um, stand up when we come to uh, Sri Lanka? I'm just going to hand over to Zoltan to talk a bit more about some of the yeah, just to say a few generalities about the book before I give my hand back over to, to uh, Alan, who will give, be giving a longer talk, and then I will be adding my own thoughts um, and at the end of that. Um, thank you for having me. Um, the, the, I think one of the interesting aspects about this book is that whilst it is about Sri Lanka, if it was more specifically present um, in the case, um, it can be of interest to, to many of you in the room because of the way it tries to frame Sri Lanka geographically. So we've heard the, the thematic framing is, of course, a key to this, this book, but also the ways that the various authors in the book have tried to situate Sri Lanka. Um, because, of course, we, we fall into these geographical, um, naturally given categories very easily. A book on the history of Sri Lanka seems self-evident, or you are studying um, South Asian studies, or the, the seminar is called South Asian. What, what is that supposed to mean? What, what does that mean in the 15th century, in the 18th century, in the 2nd century? These, these categories are obviously um, um, down to their own historicity, and, and we ought to be interested in that historicity and, and handle it in a flexible way, I think. So, in the second half of the book, which is mostly about the early modern um, period, which is entirely about the early modern period, almost entirely, um, we have an opening chapter by Sujata Arunati Megama, who's an art historian from Sri Lanka, uh, currently working at the at, at, in Singapore. At, um, it's not the NUS, it's the Nanyang Technological University. And um, she, she tries to play around, well, she, she connects the making of uh, ivory caskets in Sri Lanka first to architectural remains in the island. So her idea is, is that ivory caskets which have been kept intact in museums may tell us something about buildings which have been destroyed in, out in the landscape. So um, there might be relations there within Sri Lanka that are interesting. Then she asks questions about what, what does distinguish Sri Lankan um, art, art, artistic practice, motives, uh, meanings, iconographies from South Asian or South Indian um, um, iconographies more specifically. Very, very difficult question. It seems, um, it is in, in fact very difficult to, to, to answer. Uh, and then she draws much wider connections, of course, with um, European, the world of European prints circulating uh, during this period, and even 
the distant realities of colonial Mexico and Peru um, and the production of ivories and other uh, imagery in those, um, um, in those areas. And I think this is a good example of how um, we, we have encouraged our authors, our contributors to play with the, the geographical categories involved and to, to draw ample connections, but not just for the sake of drawing connections, but to, to reflect on these, on these things. Um, I'll say a little more about my chapter uh, later on. The chapter by Ganna Sobey-Sekri um, is about the Kambia kingdom, Ugarata, in the central highlands of Sri Lanka. Um, and obviously you've all heard, you've uh, probably read Ganna's work on other uh, topics. He's, he's, he's been working on Kambi uh, for quite some years now, very intensively, and this is one of the outcomes of that work, um, published widely. Um, again, this is about looking at Kambi, the Kambian kingdom, which is often um, seen as the quintessential uh, Sri Lankan uh, Sinhala uh, realm and resisting the invaders by uh, Portuguese, uh, Holland, and then England. Um, and he, he tries to explore the connections with the Indian South and this sort of pendular movement between opening up and closing down, opening up and closing down. It's quite, it's, it's a fairly impressive uh, piece of work about courtly culture and how it can um, change as a result of the personal politics, very centered on um, the personalities and political projects of one ruler after another. So there's something to be said about spatiality and temporality, of course, that is very important. Um, Alicia Shrika and Kate Nkama uh, have produced a very interesting chapter on slavery, which um, draws attention to the Dutch system. The Dutch system, obviously, as you all know, is a trading system, but also very interestingly, the legal system and the judicial uh, system, which stretches across the Indian Ocean and, and is sort of a completely ignored uh, cosmopolis, if you want to make cosmopolis of the Indian Ocean world, um, allowing for the circulation, for example, of, of, of people uh, of, from Malay background, from Java, who are banned, um, who, who are brought to uh, Sri Lanka, some of them are brought to South Africa, to the Cape Colony, some of them come back to Sri Lanka, and these obviously are people who are tossed around by the system, but they are also people who make use of the system to um, assert their own status, for example, to contest their status as slaves. Uh, it's extremely interesting how, the, how people are able, able and capable of um, playing the system um, in a geographically very, very ample um, um, context. Um, two more pieces in this final part of the, of the book, one by Sujit Sivasundram, which basically explores aspects that he um, hasn't explored in such depth in his book Islanded, which I suppose, how well known is it, or how, how widely has it been received outside of the remit of Sri Lanka, it's not so much, but Islanded, very interesting book on the beginnings of, of a British rule in Sri Lanka, and so this is about the, the question of what do the British do when they face that cosmopolitan culture of the Kandian kingdom, for example. Um, obviously, the message is that you can't really distinguish, you can't draw clear borders between the cosmopolitan, the, the local, and the global, etc., etc. And finally, the, the masterpiece, of course, is Alan's um, um, summa of, of things um, uh, Sri Lankan. Um, a long durée analysis of, um, well, digestion, and I think he'll tell us a little more about what uh, he means by that. Thank you.
Thank you very much. Yes, so um, I'm going to try and summarize part of my paper here, um, which is really about identity creation and how it worked in Sri Lanka over about a thousand years, close to a hundred years. And in part, I'm addressing a, um, a long-standing theoretical impulse that scholars took outside the island to downplay the relevance of group emotions before the modern era. This had an obvious political dimension in opposition to this to the disturbing rhetoric of violence during the Civil War, 1983 till um, 2009. Um, in reaction to this, partly drawing on post-colonial, but also what Michael Roberts called post-Orientalist, as in post-Saidian work, um, has generally tried to, as you will probably know, uh, emphasize the power of British colonial knowledge-making um, and therefore the origins of ethnic and communal strife can be identified as a poisonous legacy of colonialism rather than anything more um, deep-rooted or long-lasting. But at the same time, I was also addressing some arguments made by Sheldon Pollock in his, in his uh, very large book, Language of the Gods, which opens a great conceptual vista of comparison with European history. I don't know, I don't quite know how familiar you'll, you'll be with Sheldon Pollock. It might already be a sort of tired, um, debating point in, in Indian history, I, I'm not sure. Um, but he argues that a whole range of conceptual categories, including ethnicity, were just simply never part of Indian uh, imagination. Now, I should say that I'm all in, in favor of the, this kind of large-scale large, large scale project. My, my current research on religion and politics is of a global comparative nature. So um, I'm generally more sympathetic than most historians to attempts to advance uh, generalizations spot patterns. But in this instance, I'm afraid I have to join the ranks of the naysayers. Um, and the first part of my chapter is really exploring how and why Sri Lanka does not fit some of the patterns that he um, outlines. So this audience, I suppose the key question is therefore, is Sri Lanka unusual in South Asian terms? Or is it that more generally Pollock's arguments push South Asia and Europe too far apart? I should note, just in passing, that Pollock includes Sri Lanka in his, in his book a little ambiguously because of its simultaneous participation in the Pali um, ecumeny as well as the Sanskrit. He also sees a radical divergence between the way that religion and politics relate to each other in South Asia as compared to Europe, which I think is motivated by a desire to distance himself from legitimation theory. So specifically, I'll address what he, he says about the absence of providentialism, that is the idea that there is a divine force which endows a state or a people with a sacred duty and drives its preeminence. And so he says this is absent in South Asia, and I'll argue against that for the case of um, the Sinhalese. I don't have time to go into the other elements of my chapter, um, but just to say that the approach that I take is a bit unusual because I'm not trying to drag Sri Lankan history into global history through connectedness, but rather really through comparison, often with different periods of British and European history. And one of the reasons, one of the payoffs for doing that is that it helps us to step outside some of the very politicized nature of academic work, which is just focused on one, on one part, perhaps Sri Lanka or South Asia. So Pollock, um, I'll just briefly mention Pollock's general argument. He argues that um, there was this great Sanskrit cosmopolis which stretched across South Asia and Southeast Asia from 500 to 1500 uh, CE. 
This CD compares to the imaginary crisp by Latin in Europe over a similar period. It goes on to show how from the turn of the millennia, these cosmophili get, get eaten away from inside by vernacular languages and the new states or vernacular polities, he calls them, uh, which deployed them. However, Pollock argues that these processes of vernacularization evolved in two very different ways. In Europe, they, it was the start of the path towards the nation and the nation state. South Asia took a different path. So just note that Pollock's stance here is very different to the modernization theorists or post-Orientalists for whom the material conditions of life in the pre-modern period inhibited national sentiments or even politicized ethnicity. Instead, Pollock is interested in the existence of a cultural matrix which is very long-lived and, and durable. So he says ethnic fictions or origin stories appear in Europe very early on, and yet they find no foothold in the Sanskrit imagination. Genealogy may have been a feature of dynastic aggrandizement in the medieval world, but it can't be and wasn't an explicit discourse on the origins of peoples. He says, one is hard pressed to identify a single instance of the propagation of shared um, group memories. There is a full quote um, there to show you how emphatic he's being. This immediately raises the question of definition. What is our conception of ethnicity and our ideas of common ancestry crucial to it? Um, it's certainly true, I think, that they're more prevalent in, in European history. So I was at a conference in Oxford recently on, on ethnicity, and European historians can assume that, um, that biology is conflated with culture, because that's what the texts and the people that they study um, say quite explicitly. In the surviving material from Sri Lanka, the dynasty greatly overshadows the role taken by the people. And although I'm just about to qualify this point by talking about the Vijaya myth, um, I think overall the question of the blood descent of the linguistic group does have much less salience. So maybe a priori, we could say that the existence of um, the caste system with its foundation in um, endogamy presented a, a, some kind of obstacle to fictive kinship as a means of um, bringing together larger uh, group claims. So in that, if that's the case, then Pollock has drawn our attention to an interesting divergence between the Indic world um, and the European world. But should kinship, fictive kinship, be at the heart of the conception of ethnicity? In fact, many other definitions are, are used widely. Um, in fact, Rhys Davis, the historian of uh, British uh, ethnic identity, simply says that an, eth an ethnic group is a group who, who share a common understanding of themselves as such, and a common name, uh, and common history, and certain cultural regularities. And I think actually that's much better for, for global comparison. Um, <clears throat> be that as it may, I think we do have an origin story for the singulars that was taken as a descent claim for most of its history. And that's not new to anybody um, in Sri Lanka. Um, this is the, the, the story that occurs in the Pali Chronicle, the Mahavansa of the late 5th century AD. And it tells the story of Singhabahu, the son of a lion, um, and his son Vijaya, who traveled to Lanka and uh, overmaster a local supernatural female, Diveni. I've argued in a couple of articles that this story, which ironically enough could be related to the Odysseus and Perca myths, is an example of what the anthropologist Marshall Salas called the stranger king narrative. And these narratives can be found at the heart of many ethnic origin stories worldwide. 
Lavigia's story was retold many times as Pardee and Sinhala texts. But from 1979, Ralph Goodawardner sought to rescue it from nationalist appropriation by arguing that in fact it was the origin story of a dynasty called the Sinhalas and not a people. This was a major source of controversy in the 1980s and 90s, and I think really most scholars outside of Sri Lanka then took Gunawardner's line as, as orthodox. I've argued for a different approach, that the story is not just about a dynasty, but it's about the colonization of Lanka, the establishment of humanity, and of civilization in what has been a wild place full of yaktas and nagas. And I think the notion of the Sinhala people applied there is much broader than that of the dynasty, even if it's not the main focus. Um, this also is evident from a version of the story that was told to the Chinese troublers Wan Zhang in the 7th century, who clearly understands it as an ethnic, even racial, origin here. And by the 10th century, we have a Sinhala text, um, which I'm not going to spend too much time on, apparently by the Kukash to the Pliv. And here it seems to me that the land heroic founding figures, the residents of the land, and the language are all identified with each other and are grouped under the name Singhala. In fact, even Gunnawardner later admitted that the occupation of Sri Lanka by the Chola Empire from India during the 11th and 12th centuries stimulated an archaic ethnicity. He means that that's one that tells us by part of the literati. But the Cholas were just the latest in a long line of Indians who provided alterative in the Sinhala imagination and are all lumped together under the term Gamala. So when the Portuguese and the Dutch arrive in the 16th and 17th centuries and they begin to produce ethnological material about Sri Lanka, what they report is not at all at odds with these um, texts, old, much older textual clues. They represent the Sinhalas as an ethnic group possessing particular inherited traits, a certain religious system, literary traditions, scripts, customs, and also ancestry. So why is that interesting? Well, if we think that Sinhala ethnicity is a European invention, but the first thing we have to say is not a British invention, but the Portuguese and the Dutch were talking about it much longer. But even that, of course, is not very convincing. Um, at the very least, the Sinhalas were telling themselves this story in a war poem of 1585, this is the Sitavakahatna. Again, I'm not going to spend time going through the, going through the text, uh, but it exhibits what we might call patriotic and xenophobic tendencies. And every now and then, a picture of the Sinhalas emer emerge. Um, what these verses are doing is sorting out the defeated enemies of the city of Sitavaka according to a xenophobic moral hierarchy. So if Portuguese and overseas mercenaries are just slaughtered, the mixed race, Tupahim, are reduced to a humiliating status. They're given in servitude to Vardas, who are a forest people in the interior. But note that the Sinhalese enemies of the Sitavakans, they're, they're still enemies, but they're of a different order. They're rightful residents of the land, so they're merely sent away. And I should say the historical consciousness of these texts is very striking. So contemporary wars with the Portuguese are compared with wars against the Gamalas imagined in the, in the centuries BCE. So this is a consciousness of the land that's rooted in the land and memories of ancient glory like Anadapura. <clears throat> so now we're going to come to religious versions of alterity and territoriality. Further to his argument that there was no prehistory of the nation in the Indian world, Pollock argues that we can't find any equivalent of the providential charter 
some stoic Roman thinkers provided for their own empire, a fantasy to which all Christian nations uh, then succumbed. In India, he says, the supreme deity was simply irrelevant as a source of royal authority. He was never a grantor of heavenly mandate, a justifier of rule, a transcendent real estate agent awarding parcels of land. I'm quoting from Pollock. So again, he's very emphatic. Now, on one level, I think we'd all agree that in the pre-modern period, certain religious cosmopolitanism is a major characteristic of the Indian world. It's also true that Sranka can't present an exact analogy to these late pagan and Christian ideas in the West. For one thing, the language of monotheistic agency is obviously inappropriate in the Theravada context. Nevertheless, if we adopt a broad comparative approach, it does become possible to discern echoes of something like a providential logic as far back as the Mahavansa of the 5th century, uh, century Chronicle. What I mean by providential logic is the claim that a state, land, and people has been provided with a sacred mandate and a destiny, a special responsibility to protect and sustain a sacred project. In Sri Lanka today, many, any of you uh, familiar with the island, it's summed up in the phrase Dharma Deepa, which is normally translated as the island of the Dharma, and that's held to be derived from a passage of Mahavansa. Now again, in the sort of reaction to nationalism that happened, um, scholars wanted to problematize and critique this, this sort of idea. So Jonathan Walters and Stephen Collins argued that Dharma Deepa is a mistranslation role. It's not the island which is radiant, but it's the lamp of the Dharma. Yeah, and in fact, the island of the Dharma image in the mention of the 20th century, it suits 20th century Sinha nationalist politics. However, Christine uh, Schiebel, who is broadly in agreement with this anti-nationalist objective, has recently pointed out that we still have to ask ourselves what the Mahavansa is doing, the author of the Mahavansa is doing, with this Pali word Deepa, that means both island and lamp, and that the play on words here is deliberate. I think that's instinctively right, and have long felt that a focus on linguistic arguments seems to be less relevant than the symbolic work this cluster of images is doing. I think I see the same deliberate pun or symbolic conversation in another verse from the Sitabhaga Katana. This is a, a pivotal point in the, in the narrative when Mayadili, the ruler of Sitabhaga, hands over the throne to his young lion of a son, Rajasinghe, who was a great scourge of the Portuguese and really drove them out of the island. Um, and there it is uh, on, the, on the screen. I was like a lamp tree only. This island of Lanka called Dharma. So apparently this is a very tricky verse to translate. I've had several translators look at it, and I can't um, pretend to uh, a master analysis of the semantics of it. But whatever else is going on, we have a conflation of the land of Lanka and the lamp of the Dharma. They're both a kind of base which supports the light of truth. And there's also a third element which is bundled into that, which is kinship, which forms an interdependent triad between the land of Lanka and the Dharma. And Maidili himself then is like a lamp. Anyway, more important than the meaning of a particular phrase in the Mahavansa is the overall thrust of the narrative in which it sits. And who can doubt that a major task of the Mahavansa is to celebrate the special relationship between Buddha and the blessed realm of Lanka to establish how deeply Buddha impressed his dharma on the land by his three visits, 
just as he physically sank his foot into the mountain of Adam's Peak, or that the kings of Lanka had thus charged and cherished Warren of protecting his teachings against his enemies, which will in turn mean that they must uh, flourish. So I think in general, while Pollock has done us a service of posing questions about who the Indic and the European civilization, he doesn't like that word, he might as well use it, um, one which takes cultural difference seriously, in the end his approach drowns out various dynamics of human groupishness, which unfortunately we're seeing resurgent today that are comparable across both, and you can find um, deep into their mysteries. Um, if we accept for the sake of argument that Pollock is wrong about Sri Lanka, but he's right, he's right about the rest of South and Southeast Asia, why, why might that be? Pollock does express a few reservations about Sri Lanka in his book, um, and that's because he's noting that it takes part in another cosmopolitan literary order, that of the Pali texts. But given that the Pali literature and the Mahaviharan or Theravada worldview we've been discussing first forms in Sri Lanka, this really only returns us to the question of what it might have been that made that island different from the rest of the Indian world. So perhaps then geography does matter. Sri Lanka is not part of what Rick Liebman referred to as the protected zone of Eurasia. As the Sanskrit poets were fond of pointing out, it's surrounded by the ocean. And this presented a natural limit to the ambitions of Sinhala political rulers from early on. There was no need for what Pollock refers to as a contraction to the vernacular polity. While, while at the same time, Lanka was open to the extension of military and political might by South Indian powers from roughly the first millennium BC, but those, sorry, AD, but those, those projects were never strong enough to sweep away uh, rule by Sinhala-speaking Buddhist rulers for more than a few generations. Pollock refers to the veritable law of political entropy in India, such that ruling lineages rarely lasted more than two to three centuries, and that there was often little sense of continuity between different dynastic cycles. In Sri Lanka, I think that sense of continuity is much more profound, and this may be because of this long period of protectiveness, which begins with Anuradhapura in the mid-first millennium um, BCE, and goes forward to 1000 CE. So we have 1500 years in which Anuradhapura is sort of the center of uh, the political center of Sri Lanka. And it, it's a question of this audience, but I doubt that there is an equivalent center in Indian history over this time period. So in short, Sri Lanka's geographical position may have given it enough protection for profound sensations of continuity to develop over the long term, and enough exposure or alterity for self-conscious identities to form around those continuities. Of course, all this is assuming that Pollock is right about the rest of South Asia. Um, he may not be, and that's something I'd be interested in, in hearing more about. Um, so I, I hope I've begun to show how thinking about um, using cross-cultural comparison can help um, refresh our conceptual categories maybe step outside some of the more uh, politicized concerns. I should say that um, I don't for a second intend what I've been saying is some kind of Parisian Sinhala Buddhist uh, nationalism. And in the second part of the chapter, I talk about something that nationalists would find disturbing, which is the, the general tendency for elites to identify with and to borrow from um, uh, foreign um, societies. And indeed elsewhere, I've 
Maharaji did the similar origin story himself, the Mahavansa and the Vijaya Tiranyam, so um, borrowed from and feed into a, an array of South Asian and Indian Ocean missions, and even, as I said here, borrowing from Greco Roman uh, legend in the form of Caduceus and Kerka. Uh, so now Zoltan is going to speak for a short while. Alan has luckily dropped the um, uh, word, or the, the elite, the e-word elite, um, which obviously is something that you come across uh, necessarily when you uh, work on uh, many of these sources, um, especially sources such as the Mahavansa, which is essentially a, the, the history of, of an elite, of course, and of, of a ruling um, class and, and of ruling dynasties. Uh, before I come to what I want to say about my chapter and my contribution to hopefully uh, you're thinking in the room, just a, a, a couple of technicalities, because otherwise I will, I will forget. Um, I do want to mention this, um, that the book is um, entirely online, as you may have seen. So if you Google Sri Lanka at the crossroads, it'll come um, up. And this is um, a recent development. UCL Press, University College London Press, has been revived as a brand. Um, the college is throwing tons of money at it, I shouldn't be saying this. But it means basically that um, there's a subsidizing of a scholarship that allows all these contents to be made available for free. So you can, you can do it here, you can do it at home, you can download the whole book for free. It's allowed us, um, I mean, this was a very conscious decision. Um, rather than going through the traditional uh, publishing houses to, to try to do this, because this has allowed us to reach Sri Lankan um, audiences, the Sri Lankan scholars, um, salaries just don't allow for the purchasing of books by OEC and CUC unless they are printed in India, um, but also students. Um, and so actually for a book that would you know, traditionally have probably sold about 50 copies um, between last summer and now, we've had over a thousand downloads. So we're really, uh, this is quite impressive and I think it's a great development. Um, for those of you in the room who study pre-modern South Asia, I think it's, it, it should be more or less self-evident that it's worth having a look at all the chapters in the book just flipping through them and having, um, having a look at wh whether there are things that, that apply or not, whether any theories, any doubts that um, are voiced are applicable or relevant to your um, field of study. For those of you who are probably the majority in the room who work on post-1800 um, history, and you may, may find why on earth are we sitting here listening to this, um, these musings about uh, Sheldon Pollock's um, um, work, etc., etc. Well, I think even then, I mean, the, the questions, some of the questions are absolutely fundamental for all of us. Um, Alan mentioned the question of connected history as um, opposed to or complementary uh, with um, or to um, comparative history. This is a fundamental choice that we all make in our work. And how do we combine or how do we reconcile connective to um, comparative approaches? Um, there is the question of cosmopolitanism as a concept. I'm, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that probably all of you have come across it and, and across the difficulty of finding a, defi a, a definition and be some kind of um, explanation or problematization of, of the concept that is not uh, essentially normative, right? I mean, almost everything that is out there that everyone keeps quoting about cosmopolitanism is at least partly normative and, and ideational and aspirational in part, right? It's about what, what the world should be like and what we all should be like. Um, but that's not really the question that we uh, pursue as historians, and I think there's very little. Um, and so 
I think this, this introduction in particular uh, gives some clues of what, of what may be done. There is some very interesting scholarship out there that we uh, refer to um, in the introduction. So you know, go through the footnotes and you will find uh, some of that. Okay, so let me come then to um, my own chapter as, um, well, it, it is what I have. Um, and I, I, I hesitated quite for, for a long time uh, about what to contribute to this book. Um, we have been meeting for many years, um, and we have been discussing many different things, the beginnings of colonial rule, um, spatial uh, processes, urbanism, etc., etc. And I, I ended up um, uh, writing a chapter on exile, um, basically because I had a, a number of cases of Sri Lankan princes, members of the, um, of the, the ruling um, class often aspiring to power rather than having power in the islands who went abroad uh, to f as part of their political projects. And so I, I started to look a little bit into it and um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about this um, and I want to flag up three areas for potential conversation. Firstly, the deep history of political exile and migration in South Asian history. Secondly, the problem of continuity and discontinuity between the medieval and the early modern period. And finally, the question of whether exile, usually an occurrence embedded in violent power-building processes, may legitimately thro be thrown into one basket or mentioned in one go with cosmopolitanism. So the deep history of political exile is an interesting thing. Um, there's two preliminary uh, notes on this. Firstly, uh, there's this book by Ronnie Ritchie, a, 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 a collective volume, an edited volume, about exile in Asian history. Um, as as, as Ronit Ritchie's very insightful volume um, suggests, much of the attention has gone to exile in relation with labor, especially bonded labor, slavery, the slave trade, etc., etc. Um, I don't know if, if you've come across the book. Uh, Ronit was um, here a couple of years ago, last year, a couple of years ago, she, she gave us a series of seminars or so. It's a very impressive uh, project that, that she has about exile. Uh, the other thing is that some literature on exile um, exists uh, for the for the modern period, but very little for the pre-modern period, uh, whatever you may call it. The further you go back, uh, the less you find on exile. And if you put those two handicaps together, that's where I am. The history of political exile in the pre-modern uh, period, so it's exile that has not to do with, with being uh, enslaved or, or anything like that. It, it is political exile. And it is pre-modern. There's almost nothing about that, um, and it's it's a, just it's a pity. Um, so the the problem of uh, continuity and well, this this was to say that there is a deep history to exile, which I think um, when you go through, if if you look at my chapter, you will find a number of cases uh, going back all the way to the sixth, seventh century. Uh, through the medieval period of, of basically Sri Lankan uh, princes um, who are who fall out of favor, who for some reason or another are on the wrong side of the factional divide within a Sri Lankan court, and what they do is basically they leave, right? They leave, they take their retinue, they take wives, children, allies, etc. Um, they spend time in India. It's very difficult to find, uh, so I've, I've asked um, some Indian historians um, of our official um, about whether we can actually find a trace of these Sri Lankan um, um, princes when they spend time in the southern provinces of, of India. Um, he says he has never come across anything. It must be very difficult to find. 
Um, but they spend time there, clearly they, they place their diplomatic gains, um, and sometimes they return to Sri Lanka with troops, with resources. Huh? So clearly there's stuff going on behind the scenes that we have no idea. Um, but as soon as the Portuguese uh, sources give us information, there's much more light on these processes, and suddenly we see how uh, Sri Lankan princes act in Kochi, in Goa, later in Lisbon, and what kinds of diplomatic gains they play in order to obtain support for their political projects in the island. Yeah? It's quite, quite interesting in that these are local projects, but they need to go global in order to come back and uh, have an effect uh, locally. So the, the next big question is, of course, the problem of continuity and discontinuity in, in, in the following sense. Um, for obvious reasons, 1498 is a, a symbolic watershed moment in um, South Asian history. That's the, uh, the date of uh, the arrival of the first Portuguese fleet at Kalikochikori, and um, a few years later, Portuguese arrived in Sri Lanka. Well, we, we know that, and we know how historians such as Ken Tanikar intent on, on theorizing about the Vasco da Gama era of history, right? the, the, the grand change that occurs around 1498. There's a lot going for it, of course, but the, 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 I, still, I still struggle again and again to pinpoint exactly what it is that around 1500 changes. Uh, for example, in, in Sri Lankan history, well, if you, there are previous processes, there, there are previous invasions. The solar expansion happens early on. Um, there is the constitution of the Arabic cosmopolis um, in the late medieval period. What exactly is it that is different about European intrusion in the Indian Ocean? Well, you may think it's evident, uh, but I think it's good to think it again. Um, even though I'm just going to give now two aspects that, that are clearly um, characteristic of the Portuguese period that were not there before. Yeah? So, so I sort of come and go between continuity and discontinuity. One thing that uh, speaks for discontinuity is that uh, there are two innovations. The first of them is, has to do with religion. Um, it's during the Portuguese period in the 16th century that exile appears connected, bound up with conversion. It's, um, for all the previous cases, there's no indication that um, people who came from Sri Lanka to India would be under any pressure to convert whatever it was. What, what would you convert to? Um, but as soon as they start to move um, to Goa and Lisbon, um, there is pressure to convert. As soon as from the 1540s, so it's not from the very beginning of the century, but a little later. That's one aspect. The other thing is, and this has to do with the confessionalization of the Portuguese Empire in that period, which is, uh, there's a whole historiography around that, um, um, which you will not be concerned uh, about, I suppose. The, the other thing, the other development is that Around the end of the 16th century, the Portuguese Empire's policy for Sri Lanka changes radically. So for almost a century, and that's what my, my other book is about, um, the, 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 the grand diplomatic gain of Sri Lankan princes um, traveling into the Portuguese Empire was about bringing Portuguese resources to the island for their own political projects, and the Portuguese the House of Avis, the Portuguese monarchs, were more or less happy to collaborate. It's a very complicated story of communication and miscommunication. Um, at the end of the century, the approach changes. The Portuguese crown is at that point um, united with the crown of Castile, so the Spanish Empire comes into the picture. Again, it's a very complicated story, but 
basically they go over to trying to conquer uh, Sri Lanka. And the moment you conquer, the whole idea of diplomacy, of course, becomes very problematic. Especially the idea of having a prince, for example, a disgruntled prince from Kotte or Udarata or uh, Jaffna, come to the Portuguese, ask them for support. Usually what they would ask for is, take me to Sri Lanka, help me get on the throne, and then I will pay tribute to you, I will give you all the cinnamon you want, all the elephants, etc., etc. Now, Philip II, as king of Portugal, has a different approach. He says, no, I don't, I don't need a puppet king. I am going to be king myself. I am going to be sitting on that throne as an absentee through a governor, a captain general, but I, will, I, I don't need anyone to do this for me. So at that point, the whole notion of going into exile to get support and come back becomes very problematic. Um, in the chapter, you will find a um, two, I think, quite moving stories at one at one level, but I'm not going to... Um, emphasize the, the, the emotional dimension too much. Obviously, as, as a historian, you, you, you notice how these individuals uh, go from Sri Lanka at the end of the, of the 16th century. Two princes in particular, one from um, the Central Highlands, from Kandy, um, known as Don Juan, and the other uh, from Sitabata in the southern, uh, southwestern lowlands, known as Don Philippe. And they, they go to Goa. Uh, they are educated in a Franciscan college. Um, and are finally allowed in 1608 to travel to Lisbon, um, at which point they must have realized already that their project of returning to Sri Lanka was deeply problematic. So their exile becomes long-term. It, it was quite common even in the older examples to spend some years outside of the island, but now it, it becomes a matter of decades. It becomes a matter of your life, basically. Right? You are thrown into this different place. And so the question becomes, what do you do? Um, these two princes um, take two different directions. One of them um, accepts um, the notion that he's going to be put away in a convent um, in a place quite far away from the capital, from Lisbon, and that he's going to basically disappear and die. And that, that's actually what happens to him. He, he dies very quickly. The other one, Don Juan, is a very interesting case. Um, he actually insists that he is a man of royal blood, of royal lineage. He's a prince with pedigree. He wants to be treated. He wants to be treated as such. He wants to have a grant. He wants a pension, which we won't have probably by the end of our lives, um, as things stand. Um, so he's, he wants a pension, and he gets a pension. He goes to negotiate, first in Lisbon and then in Madrid, with the authorities. Um, he renounces the throne of Candy, so he says, OK, Philip II, I renounce all the claims that I have to this throne, but you pay me in return. He becomes a grandee, he becomes an aristocrat, a titled aristocrat. Um, he becomes a very rich man. He starts to invest in a portfolio of uh, properties, um, and he ends up building his own church. And in this chapter, you will find the story of how he builds this church as a sort of a monument to himself and to his quality as a converted Sri Lankan royal. So he is all these things at the same time. He is a, a, Sinhala, a Sinhalese prince. He is royal. That is something that people in Portuguese society can read, understand. He is of high pedigree. He has money. And now he constructs a, a, a church that he's going to um, designate as uh, the 
Church of, uh, of the, the, the Virgin, of Nossa Senhora, uh, of the open gate, the, the Porta do Céu, of, of the gates of heaven, uh, um, which is a reference to the Genesis, uh, to, to, to the, the dream of Jacob, to the, to the dream of the ladder. Um, it's, you can explore all that if, if you read my chapter. The, the point being that here is someone who has to go through an apprenticeship uh, here's someone who has to go through conversion, um, through a reformulation of his own self. But obviously, he doesn't abandon everything. He doesn't leave everything behind to become a Portuguese subject of the Portuguese task. He's, he's something different. Huh? So he's going to have to negotiate this position. And it's very, very impressive how he does it. Um, and um, there's a second uh, similar case at the end of my chapter uh, of someone who didn't make it all the way to Lisbon, but in Goa played a very similar game. Um, these are very interesting cases of how someone who has a local political political project goes global through a diplomatic um, initiative, uh, chooses exile to somehow further their own political project locally, but ends up thrown on a much bigger stage, stage uh, and ends up uh, having to develop their lives somewhere completely different. Uh, and yet, in that new life, the elements of the old life are uh, always present. And I think this really messes with our categories of the local and the global. It makes it very, um, well, difficult on the, other hand, on the other hand, quite riveting to think about uh, all these things. So I'm going to stop here. And by the way, there are six copies I, I brought from London. So UCL Press um, makes them available for £20 each. Um, I can take them back, of course, no problem. And I think we're, we're happy to take them. We would like to have some questions from the audience.